Hi there. Hi, everybody. Uh, this is Designing Yourself. My name is Paul McAleer. And this is Whitney Hess. Thank you for listening today. Yeah, thanks for thanks for tuning in. Um, so this week, what we wanted to do was talk about balance. Um, you, so b- before we started, uh, Whitney, you said something that was, was kind of interesting to me. You said you weren't sure about balance in general. Um, so I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear what you think about it for, for starters, and what you're thinking about in terms of balance and what 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 it means to you. So I'll just start off by saying that um, we had a short exchange over email where you said that you feel like sometimes you're either doing something or you're not doing something. It's like black and white. Yes. And I am very much the same way. I think that things are right or wrong or all or nothing. I have a really hard time with the middle ground. I have a really hard time with the gray area and moderation. And I've been told that this is what balance is. And so when I say to you, I'm not sure I really even know what balance is, is because I don't know that I have a lot of it in my life. And it seems to me that it's something that people say we're supposed to have. But why? What is balance and why are we supposed to have it? Well, I think part of it is that you know, one of the things I said um, also in that email was, you know, talking about in the terms of business, right? There's almost any chart I've ever seen in any meeting that involves a triangle talks about balance, right? It, it's, you know, the, the fast, good, cheap, pick any two, that old <laughs> saw, right? Um, but it's it, But it always comes down to balance. And, you know, I mean, in my experience, that stuff is never, ever, 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 ever actually balanced. Like something always wins out. And... You know, this is not necessarily a loser, but that's the way I think about it. But when you think about, um, you know, in terms of yourself, too, I mean, that's that's kind of how I see it as well. Like there's this pretend thing that we are supposed to, you know, kind of be maybe fair in all things, always with everybody. Um, and that's something I've I've had with me for a long time. But I'm finding more and more that that's simply not the case. Uh, you don't you don't have to balance everything out. I mean, sometimes things are going to be, you know, leaning towards selfish, selfless, you know, those things that we talked about a couple episodes ago. Um, And, and it's, I'm just feeling like it's not possible to be totally balanced, but that is also balance by not being balanced. Do you know what I mean? Totally. Like the saying, all things in moderation, including moderation. Yes. Yes, exactly like that. Well, the word balance for me brings to mind motion because I think of a seesaw and two people trying to keep each other in balance. And when one person goes up, the other person has to go down and they have to try to oppose each other's forces. And they will achieve balance, but it's momentary. It's not really something that you can sustain. And so I don't, I think that the way we use that term balance is as though it's possible to be still and be calm and have everything in equilibrium as though that's something that can be static but I don't think it is for me it feels like a really active thing like it's something that you're striving for but it's not really anything you can permanently attain 
Well, no, I, I, I agree with you on that. There's no real permanence in it, right? And I think you hit a you hit a really interesting point there is that I think it often can be conflated with calmness, you know? Well, I am that's when I say I have no balance is because I don't think that I have a lot of calm in my life. Ah. I mean, there are times when I'm calm if there's really nothing going on. I'm not being inundated with emails or I don't have a deadline that I'm expected to meet or I'm not in conversation with someone. Maybe if I'm just laying on the couch and watching TV, perhaps I'm in a calm state. But as soon as there's external stimuli, immediately I'm out of balance. I, I'm not in any way um, at a point in my life or in my self-development where I'm able to maintain my sense of self or maintain my composure when I'm receiving stimuli from other people or from like other areas of my life. I'm constantly in like processing mode. And so sometimes it picks me up, sometimes it brings me down. Like that's constant. I don't feel as though I'm ever in this like tranquil state where anyone can say anything to me and I just receive it without any reaction. That's what I conjure up in my mind when I think of that term balance. See, and that's kind of the place I used to be myself because I would... Ooh, the way I would react to a lot of things was I would hear something from somebody and then um, I would take it in, but I would try to, well, I would try to think on it a lot. Like we talked a little uh, last time about like mind and body and all that good stuff. And I would really kind of let my mind drive that whole thing and just say, you know, just take it in and absorb it and analyze it and, you know, do all that stuff to it. But I wouldn't necessarily show any kind of reaction to it. Like I became famous in, gosh, in lots of my jobs for being really calm, you know, and that's something I actually pride myself on and have in the past is, you know, in, in times of crisis, I tended to be very calm. And that meant also not really showing emotion in any direction. But the truth of the matter is that I really did have these emotions and feelings inside of me, but I was not showing it to the world. You know, I was just being super duper calm and kind of not, I wouldn't say not present, but almost not present. And I'm thinking of that now in the context of not just business meetings and things like that I've been in, but like usability testing where, you know, we, we talked a little about this too, where you kind of, like you said, when you're doing interviews and, and the like, you kind of check yourself out a little bit and you, you totally absorb what the other person is saying and having and having spoken with you in person one time, I can attest to that. Like I noticed that and I don't see it as a, I don't see it as a negative thing at all. I saw it as like a really positive quality that you were so absorbed in what I was saying that it was obvious that you were listening with intent. But my point with all this is that we, you know, the way that, that I approached it was don't show emotion that's exhibiting balance and calm. I don't know that I've ever been able to do that. I mean, I would love to think that when I'm in a client situation that I'm incredibly diplomatic, that I know how to manage clients well after a decade of being in client services, that I'm able to take things in with composure and go away from the situation and then analyze what was said and how I feel about it and then react after some reflection, but I think I'd be lying if I claim that that's how I actually am. 
I think I am very professional and I've been told by many of the people that I've worked with that I am I put on this kind of professional um I'm in professional mode when I'm in professional situations. People that know me personally that then see me in a business context later say, wow, you were so professional. <laughs> and I don't know. Now that I'm saying it out loud, I'm wondering, were they, was that a compliment? <laughs> but, um, or maybe it's saying something about how I am when I'm not being professional. Maybe, maybe. But I do know that there have been times where I have been confronted with things in a professional context that have rubbed me the wrong way or that have made me feel like it's essential that I react immediately, and I do. And it's not always a conscious decision, okay, I'm going to react to this now. Sometimes I'm overcome. And it hasn't gotten me into hot water, thankfully. And in fact, I have been able to build a reputation for being forthcoming and not being beating around the bush and not um, yes-sirring everyone when in fact I believe that there's a better way to do things. People say that I raise issues immediately. And so there are some positives to that, but I can think of a couple situations where I wished that I had a deeper calm in me that I was able to, you know, be in that moment and allow someone to express themselves without immediately reacting to it. And um, and I have not done that. I really feel as though there's a lot of um, a lot of imbalance perhaps that's just lying underneath the surface that maybe I do a really good job of appearing a certain way when I'm in that mode like I'm really good at putting up that front perhaps but what's happening below the surface is like tumultuous almost and so where does this balance even come from where does this comfort with the unknown and comfort and ambiguity and comfort in waiting um, what I wish I imagine is all inherent to balance. Where does that come from? I don't know at all. I have no idea. And I'm going to not answer your question because you said something else that I found really interesting. Um, you talked about professional mode, and this pulls into this pulls into the idea, the the old idea of work life balance, right? And this is. This is something that I've totally changed my perspective on um, relatively recently, right? So I, I also have a professional mode, and it is, it's something I used to not notice. But the way, well, the way I articulated it was always, you know, the way that I am at work is different than the way I am anywhere else. And that is still mostly true, but... I've been trying to change that in certain ways. You know, I've been I've been trying to be more expressive, more emotional, frankly, more vocal in matters in things that matter to me. You know, in in, in matters of my work and my team's work and the work of other people and all that good stuff at work, because I'm starting to not 
Mm, I, I see the benefit of a, of, a, of a professional mode. You know, I see that there's a time absolutely to be diplomatic. There is absolutely a time to be calm. I get that. And I agree with you on that. But there are also these other times that I was not taking advantage of either where, you know, that type of like, I actually needed that type of quick reaction that you were trying to not have, right? Like those are those are things where I needed to express myself more forcefully and more forcibly than I was because I would, you know, uh, in, in those situations, I would take it in, sit with it for a while, let it fester under the surface and then either do nothing or do nothing. <laughs> I mean, that was what I did or be passive aggressive about it or something totally not very productive and not very satisfying to me and not true to me either. So. I have that professional mode as well, but where does this, where does this come from? Where does professional mode come from? Why is it so different than us as people? Is it different than us as people or is it just another facet of us? You know, it's so funny because you were naturally a way that I've always wished I could be. And you're saying that you felt as though you needed to be more like the way that I naturally am and totally that was something you were trying to cultivate and it just it makes me realize maybe there's a balance to strike between the two ah, you know? ah um, nice but nice. I I haven't fully been able to to cultivate that which you have naturally and so I think I'm supposed to be all that rather than being a little bit more that way and a little bit less susceptible to other people's reactions to things um and that that notion of a little different is a lot harder of a concept for me to grasp than it is to be 180 degrees different for some reason um because there's something about when you want to change completely that when you start behaving in a way that you no longer recognize at all, you know you're on the right track, as opposed to having a much more sensitive awareness of when to be slightly different in certain contexts and only to a certain extent in order to achieve that balance. And I think that your awareness has to be so fine-tuned to recognize when you've done too little and when you've done too much that that's what makes balance such a challenging concept for me. Um, and, but, but more directly to your question of where does this professional persona come from, this notion that we're supposed to be different in business contexts than we are in personal contexts. It was f that belief that I fundamentally did not agree with and was why I ultimately quit my full-time job to go independent. Because I felt like when I walked in the door, I had to put up a front, I had to behave in a different manner, I had to suppress a lot of my natural ways of being and conform to what was expected of me. And that wore on me eventually and I just felt as though I couldn't do it. And I didn't know how to be a little bit more me in the workplace to the point where I was comfortable while still achieving what was expected of me. And so when I started to kind of break down, I, I'll put it that way, without 
insinuating that I was having a breakdown. But when those, right. when that front started to break apart and I, the real me was seeping through more and more, I noticed myself getting into conflicts that I would have otherwise avoided because I was not being fully me. And it's when I realized that me being more me at work was making it more challenging for me to get done what I need to get done and to be considered an expert and to be considered someone that was reliable and all of these things. It was like, wait a minute, I'm just getting comfortable. I'm just finally feeling like I am valued here. And now that I'm being a little bit more me, questions are arising. Okay, clearly the corporate environment doesn't work for me. And that was the third company that I had a full-time job at in three and a half years. I'd spent a year and a half in one company, six months in the next company, and they were having financial problems. And I eventually ended up leaving in like a max exodus of other people. And then I was at my third company for a year and a half. And so I felt, you know what, it's not them, it's me. It's something that I need. Maybe I don't want to balance that professional and personal persona. Maybe I just don't have the energy for it. And that's why balance has always been a tricky thing for me because I feel like it requires a tremendous amount of energy to remain in balance. Do you think that it was you or was it them? Because I'm really curious about that because I'm, I'm, I, I want to hear your thoughts on that because based on what you just told me, it sounds like, you know, the way that it went down in general is that these, these work environments were not, were not for you. And thus it wasn't like, not that there's a blame involved, but it simply wasn't a good fit for a relationship, right? It was simply that, you know, this is what, this is what this environment demanded of you and you attempted to conform to that and ultimately you said no that's that's not it see you later but when you were talking about it um it sounded like you were you were kind of shouldering that and saying well it, it was me and that's the way that i am and i get i think i get that because i it sounds like you're kind of declaring well this is you know this is who i am and and from that place of understanding but i i also heard it a little as i didn't fit there so it's on me. And maybe, I mean, I would flip that bit if I were you. And I'm totally loading this question. But do you agree with me on this or not? <laughs> the reason why I take accountability for that is because I feel I entered the relationship from the first interview to the last interview to the first day at work to the last day at work. I really feel like I approached it with my professional persona on. And had I, I been fully me through the interview process, through the getting to know you, so on and so forth, then maybe I would have, A, identified that it wasn't the right environment to match my personality earlier on or would have never gone to work there in the first place or maybe they would have never hired me. But instead, I believed that I was supposed to be less me, heavy quotes, whatever that means, and more this professional, respectable, buttoned up, successful person. And so I went in being that person. 
And when I finally got comfortable and felt as though these aren't just my coworkers, these are my friends. We go out for drinks and we talk about mm. stuff that's happening outside of work when we see each other in the mornings. And we've been to hell and back on these projects. So I can let down my guard. I could be a little bit more me and have like maybe a little bit more of an edge, a little bit more of an attitude. Maybe I can you know, be a little bit more lax with my language, what have you, then I would notice things would shift. And so I don't want to say it's my fault. And I hear you responding to that kind of phrasing. But it's more that I think it's on me because I wasn't really authentic about what I'm about from day one. Okay, I understand that. And yeah, it makes sense to me in the context then of, you know, if you went in as as professional Whitney S and you started there and you, you had that whole relationship with them in that persona or that mode, then sure, you would exit also in that persona or mode. I mean, that that I understand as a concept. Um, you know, it's it, and it's it's interesting because with that, too, you know, you also mentioned kind of the all or nothing thing, which which touched back to something that I said to you is that. The way I approach a lot of things, and it sounds like you do as well, is pretty much, you know, either I'm totally doing it or I'm totally not doing it. And that gray area is that weird part, right? Like, you know, we talked about the way that uh, we handle calmness in work environments. And one thing I was thinking about, too, was the um, the running, right? So that's that's my topic du jour today. Um, you know, when, when I started it, one of the things that I had a fear of was becoming a stereotypical runner because for me having that label had lots of negative things on it. Um, I didn't want to be that person, but I also felt that if I started running, I would be that person. Like once I have the label of runner, there's a certain number of things that are associated with that. Some that are positive and some that may be negative as well. And I wanted to have that, I wanted to have the positives, but I also acknowledged that the negatives might be there. And I didn't want those negatives, of course, because part of me wants to please everybody, right? So that part of me was really upset with that. But what I came to with that is that the labels don't have to apply to me. I mean, what I'm looking for in those, I feel, is some sort of external validation of just saying like, yes, you are a runner, or yes, you do yoga, or yes, you you do practice Buddhism, or yes, you drink a lot of water every day. You know, those things, because they can help other people define who I am through words and maybe some actions. But, you know, much like we've talked about before, it doesn't give a complete picture, but naturally I like to have these these some of these labels and and go with them. And for me, it, it is an all or nothing thing. It's like either you are a runner or you are not a runner. There's no in between, right? I totally can identify with that. And I've struggled with this a lot myself, this need to take an interest and then self-identify. So I was joking around the other day on Twitter because I was rewriting my bio and I said something like, how do you encapsulate your entire identity in 160 characters? Sure. <laughs> because I have rewritten my bio 30 times in five and a half years or however long I've been on Twitter. I mean, sincerely, I can never get it right. And every time that I 
think I've got it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to save that. And then I look at it again and I'm like, that's not me. Because I want to say a hundred other things about me because those are all part of my identity as well. And so I can identify with what you're saying. This, this idea that other people's concepts of us is going to be defined by what we claim that we do and unless we're doing it fully wholly immersing ourselves in it then are we really doing it at all and I have struggled with that with a lot of different things in my life for instance being all for our body so mm-hmm. they say it's not a diet it's an eating plan it's a way of thinking about food whatever you want to say it is if it's consciously changing the way you eat I think it's a diet and so there it's been two years since I've been doing this and my boyfriend had started about a month month and a half before I did and um, so we've been doing this together for a long time and at first we were great about it it was six days on one day off you get your one cheat day a week And you can eat whatever you want, but all the other days you follow a pretty rigid plan of no carbohydrates and no sugars and no dairy and la la la, lots of stuff. Well, as time went on, as our relationship evolved and as life evolved and different events, you know, came up and we traveled and this and that, it became a lot less appealing to be on plan strictly 100% of the time. So there would be times that we would cheat, as it's called, <laughs> um, and we would eat something we weren't supposed to eat on a day that we weren't supposed to eat it. And then we would eventually say, oh, let's get back on track. And we do that for a few weeks and then something else would come up. An opportunity to go eat at a great restaurant, a friend's birthday, traveling out of town, just being tired at the end of the night and not feeling like cooking something good or whatever. Just the whims of everyday life. And I really struggled with even saying I'm on for our body because I knew in my heart that it wasn't something that I was consistently doing six days a week, one day off. And I felt like I couldn't say anymore, I'm off for our body because I wasn't doing it as it was written to the letter in this one book. And that I think is, it kind of encapsulates my struggle with balance because to be on for our body is just your own personal definition of what that means. The way it's written in the book does not have to be the way that you incorporate it into your life. Just like Buddhism, just like user experience. You know, I got a master's degree in human-computer interaction. The day that I entered industry, the lesson was taught pretty clearly that it's not going to be practiced the way it was in school. This is industry. Things are done differently here. And you have to... Strike that balance between doing it the ideal way and not doing it at all. And so these are the realities of the working world. How are we going to adapt what you've learned in order to do it good enough? 
How are you going to be on four-hour body so that it's not ruling your life and it's not limiting your experiences, but you're doing it good enough? How are you going to be professional in the workplace so that you are appreciated and respected and able to get things done But you're not denying your true self and you're not preventing people from getting to know the special human being that you are so that you're being professional enough. And that's what I think balance is. And I don't know how people do it. How do you know if if it's good enough? Well, so I think with that, there's a couple things. One is that we... We have these, and we've talked about this before, but we have these scorecards that are just kind of floating out there that let us let us know if we're doing something right or wrong. And again, that's a black or white thing, right? It's either you are doing it right or you are doing it wrong. There's no middle ground, but we know that there are tons of shades of gray out there. So when you're talking about things like you know the four-hour diet, when I'm talking about things like running, when we're both talking about things like practicing yoga, meditating, things like this, I think that both of us have standards in our heads for what the ideal is or the perfect way of doing it, right? It is, it for me, with yoga, it is like I am doing it every day, I am doing it in the morning, and it is awesome. And every time, I am getting better at it. Now, the last part of that is true, even if I'm not doing it every day, because every day I'm getting better at it. Or if I don't do it every day, great, but every time I'm getting better at it. But isn't the brilliant part of life and that gray area and maybe the balance is that kind of piggybacking on what you said we take these things in we take things in like like diets or we take in things like exercise or we take in things like relationships or we take in other things you know we read self-help books we listen to awesome self-help podcasts we listen to all this (laughs) stuff we take we take them in and we feel them and we interpret them in our own way and it's totally unique to every person right it's absolutely unique and isn't that enough isn't that good enough because we are doing it and we are deciding if we want to do it and the level we want to do it and everything right like i don't know at one point well here's i'm starting to say this but it's not true but i'm going to finish my statement and then counteract my or contradict myself i don't know when i will no longer be a quote runner right but then I kind of do. It's like when I stop running and I feel that I don't identify myself in that way. Um, It's like I used to play guitar a lot more than I do now, right? So for a long period of my, my, you know, early teens and 20s, (laughs) like a lot of early teens and 20s, I, you know, I I said, uh, I play guitar. Um, I was practicing, I was learning, I got better at it. I never got really great at it, but I was comfortable with it. And I just kind of put it away for a while. And, you know, it's str- I struggle with that because I still wanted to identify as someone who played a guitar and was a guitar player because I like that. You know, that's something that I kind of aspired to in a way. And that's a quality that I wanted to have. So in my Twitter bio, I would love to have a guitar player, right, for instance. The truth of the matter is that I do play guitar. I just don't do it very often. I did it, you know, in February for the only the second time ever in front of a crowd. And... That's still, but that's still, that's a part of me. It is still a part of me. Now, whether I take that label or not is also up to me. But if you were to make a giant label list, there's tons of stuff that I don't currently do, but I still feel that's, that's a part of me. So maybe it never, ever goes away. Maybe it's always there in a sense with us, right? Maybe it's, maybe it's just 
that we always have these qualities with us, even if we try something one time, you know, then we know that we tried it and we either didn't like it or didn't want to do it anymore or any other of these valid reasons that we have in ourselves to justify doing it or not. And maybe that is good enough. Absolutely. I mean, as you're describing this, I was reminded of one of the assignments that was given to me in the first session of my new coaching course, and that is a daily sitting practice. As we would call meditation, they call sitting. They try to be as <laughs> sure. um, they try to be as religion or doctrine free as possible, I suppose. But the assignment, as it is written on the sheet of paper in my binder, is to sit for thirty minutes in a chair, eyes gently closed, or looking down in front of you with, you know, slightly opened eyes, um, no repeating of a mantra, no guided anything, not manipulating the breath, just observing the breath. And if a thought comes in that captures your mind, recognizing it, observing it, and letting it go. And they have, you know, four or five steps that they outline as being what the assigned meditation practice is intended to be done daily for the year that we're in this coaching program. Well, we practiced it once when we were in session together in June, and we only did 10 minutes, and it was a long 10 minutes, and I had played around with meditation here or there prior to that, but I never had any method for it so I kind of just sat there and then waited to see what happened and didn't really know what it was so just kind of said oh I guess I'm meditating but this was very specific and so we were given a mini tutorial in this 10 minute period of the meditation practice that they were recommending okay well I had a check-in with the instructor of the um, the lead instructor of my coaching program, uh, not last week. Yeah, I think it was the beginning of last week. And I was really nervous before chatting with her. I was almost dreading the conversation, even though a part of me was so excited about checking in and sharing my progress with her and asking for her input on some things that I was finding challenging. Particularly, I was dreading having to tell her that I haven't been meditating every day, that there are some days I do it, but that there have been no two days in a row that I've done it the same. And in my mind, the movies that I've seen, Eat, Pray, Love, and you know what have you about women finding their true selves because they've practiced meditation, is this notion that it's exactly the same every day at the same time. It's very ritualistic. It's very intense. And that has not been the experience that I've had. I do it during the time of day that I find I can take 30 minutes out of the day. Sometimes I can't take a whole 30 minutes. Sometimes I'm at home. Sometimes I'm on the beach. Sometimes it's just after a yoga class. You know, it has varied. And I really didn't want to share this with her because I felt like I was doing it wrong. And I felt like I was being graded because this is an educational program after all. And this was an assigned, you know, uh, this was an assignment. So I wasn't doing it right. Mm 
And when I shared with my progress with her, she said, okay, so it sounds like carving out 30 minutes a day at the same time every day in the same place is really not realistic for you. So what if we did instead that wherever you are, that you're able to take some time to relax and check out, that you just take whatever time you can in any context that you're in. And even if it's while you're doing something else, even if it's while you're walking somewhere, you just, you know, take the principles of what we taught and you integrated. And she was basically saying, don't sweat it. This isn't supposed to be rigid. This isn't supposed to be done exactly as it was described, as though that's the only right way to do it. Integrate it into your life in a way that makes sense and a way that works and a way that you're not going to feel guilty or shameful if you're not doing it correctly, but will open you up to the possibility of doing it a little bit. And I was so struck by at the time, what I considered to be her generosity, but I later realized was wisdom. And I was reminded of how many times I have worked with clients who've said, you know, the way that you taught us to do usability testing, the way that you've taught us to do user research, we love the concept of it, but it's just not realistic for what resources we have right now the time crunch that we're on, our financial situation, the availability of our staff. Is there a smaller version of how we can do this? Is there a modification to this? And that's ultimately what I became known for. And I did a lot of work with startups almost immediately when I went independent because I was able to take what would otherwise be a three-month process and distill it down to one week or even one day if that's all the time that they had because I believed that some data was better than no data. Some empathy was better than no empathy. Some intel from the outside world was better than none. And if you were going to be so rigid in how you were approaching doing it that it had to be done to the letter, that it was never going to get done at all. And that's when you're saying like either I'm a runner or I'm not a runner, I'm a guitar player, I'm not a guitar player. That's what that conjures up for me. This shamefulness that we feel when we haven't fulfilled whatever expectations we believe makes us officially a blank to the point where it prevents us in the future from dabbling and eventually becoming that. We just shy away from it instead because we haven't fulfilled it to the extent that we feel we're supposed to. Totally. I, I absolutely agree. And another thing I was thinking about was that a number, gosh, a number of years ago now, and I say a number of years and really it's 13 years ago, um, I, I just wanted to start painting and paint. And I hadn't done that really outside of uh, school because I went to art school and that's one of the things you do in art school is paint. But I really got the itch to paint. So I bought me some canvases. I went to the art supply store, got some paints, you know, didn't quite know which, you know, which I needed to get and all the tools and all that stuff. I just got what I needed, you know, some brushes some paints and I painted and that was that, you know, and it's not like I'm continuing to be a painter, but it was just something that I had in me that I wanted to get out and share with myself, A, and, and the world, B, and I did it, but... That doesn't mean, like, I don't identify as a painter now, but it's something that I did. I'm still proud of that. 
And to me, that's one of those things that's a little tiny, tiny gray area. Another thing that, you know, you mentioned too, and I'm glad you brought this up too, is, is the, the repetition and continuing to do something. It made me think of uh, the, the uh, Seinfeld calendar. Have you heard of this? No. Okay. So this is, this is old school stuff and I'll, I'll link it up. <laughs> it's old school. It's so cool. You haven't heard of it. Um, but it was that, um, so it was Brad Isaac um, shared this on Lifehacker uh, a number of years ago, like uh, this is a different number of years ago. <laughs> this is only six years ago. Um, but he talked with Jerry Seinfeld and wanted to get advice on how to be a better comic. So Seinfeld told him, basically, I put up a big calendar on my wall. And every day I take some time and write, you know, work to write a joke, right? Because that's the, the repetition is what he really wanted to do. So what he would do, he would, he would write on a day and he put a big red X on the calendar for that day, right? Whatever day it was. He would do it the next day and the next day and the next day. So his calendar would start to fill up with these big red X's. And the quote that he says is that after a few days, you have a chain. Just keep at it and the chain will grow longer every day. Don't break the chain. Your only job next is to not break the chain. And that to me is just another visual, in this case, very visual, very obvious method to say like, hey, if you repeat something over time, you're going to get something out of it, right? The repetition is is part of that balance as well, right? Because you you know if you do something once, like paint, it's not not there's no value judgment on it whether it's bad or good. But I'm also not honing any of my skills as a painter, but I'm comfortable with that. But if I want to you know if I want to do something on a daily basis, if I want to do yoga on a daily basis, or I want to write on a daily basis, or I want to tweet. <laughs> on what seems like a half hourly basis, then I, I, I might benefit and some other people might benefit from some sort of visual reminder of that, just as another form of motivation other than, you know, just having this in your head, getting it out of your head and saying, you know, this is what I've got other than the actual product or whatever you're making to show for it, but some sort of, you know, something that shows your method, something that shows your process. Have I told you about the Lyft app yet? Oh, I have heard of it, but you need to tell me about it. It's um, It was created by my friend Tony Stubblebean, who created Crowdvine. Do you remember Crowdvine from a few years ago? I do not. I'm sorry to say. Crowdvine was um, the original social network for conferences. Totally awesome web app, and I don't know that it's entirely defunct. Um, I would love if it was still being used but essentially it would allow people to connect with conference attendees prior to the conference so you could set up like who you were going to meet and who you already knew and what events you were what what sessions you wanted to attend and stuff and it was like a great planner and then you can go and actually check off people that you had met at the conference this is pre-lanyard but anyway that was created by tony stubblebean and now he's created the lift app which is something that when he first was testing it with friends i tried it out and i was kind of like okay i see the concept i like the concept it's in line with the way i think but i don't have any room in my life for this but just recently i went back to it and i'm like whoa i get it now so it is 
like a to-do app in that you add tasks to it. However, these are not one-off things that you need to achieve in a day. These are the habits you're trying to form. And so every single day when you pull up the app, the same habits appear. It's one single list and you can complete those every day and you can see the running totals of how many days in a row you've completed or how many um, weeks in a row you've completed it. You can add notes to it. And what's also fun is that they are shared across the community. So when you're typing in a task or a goal or a habit that you want to add to your list, it's doing a search throughout the community. It shows you all of the relevant matches. You can choose to add your own in your own wording, or you can select one that other people are participating in. And then you can see the thousand people that are all trying to take a multivitamin every day or trying to do yoga every day. And so recently, because I have a lot of practices assigned to me through the coaching program, I'm doing the artist way with a group of friends right now and there are a lot of tasks that that are assigned each week in the reading, things that I want to be able to get done. And just in the work that I'm doing to develop myself, I'm trying to um, make better habits stick in creating a routine, in making sure that the things that really matter to me, I'm getting done every day and I'm not just getting stuck in my to-do list of tasks that are one-off things that I just feel I have to get done that day for some reason, but the things that really truly matter to help me be the person that I want to be, I'm putting those into Lyft. And I've only been back using it like the last five or six days, but I'm loving looking at it each night and checking off all the things that I achieved. Yes, I went to yoga. Yes, I did meditation. Yes, I took my multivitamin. Yes, I called or emailed a good friend out of nowhere. Yes, I, um, what are my others? I wrote in my journal. And I have a bunch of them. And not all of them are intended to be achieved every day, and that's okay. It's not like the numbers are ticking up, like in an inbox of all the things that I haven't gotten done that day. Some of them are weekly goals, but it's still so nice to have that there, and it it gets back to what you were saying about that repetition. And if you don't do it one day, that's okay. You know, you can break the chain. I I feel as though that's almost a little too rigid for me, even though I like the concept. It's too much pressure for me. And once I feel as though there's like this external pressure, I rebel against it. So instead, it's that list is just there for me to check in with. If I did it that day, great. If not, it's going to appear on the list again tomorrow. It's not stacking up. It's just showing the same list every day. And I'm absolutely loving it. I really recommend it. That's pretty awesome. I'm looking at some of the screenshots uh, of it right now. And, you know, it's interesting because it reminds me a lot of the um, the daily review feature in Things, which is my to-do app of choice. Um, because you can also set up, repeating things, um, pun fully intended. So if there's something I need to do on a regular basis, I can set it in there and say, you know, every two weeks on a Monday, show this to me. Um, usually I use it for stuff like, hey, I got to swap out my contacts. It's been two weeks, stuff like that. And then I look at that 
every day. In theory, uh, I look at that every day and I review what I need to do that day, right? But I think the the, the interesting part of Lyft is the community around it and the fact that it's it's gravitating towards habits. Now you could use you know you could use things or or any list app or anything like that to do this, but you know, not having used it, but just the whole community aspect is pretty wild to me. I mean, I like that notion. And you know, that's something when I think about in the context of my running, um, that's something that I like about Nike plus is because then, you know, a little bit of the break, not breaking the chain stuff, a little bit of the community stuff, but really being able to look at a chart in the app and say like, wow, this is when I did it. And I can see it over time. And for me, that's the exciting stuff too. Like the numbers part of me, digs that stuff so much, you know, because then I can see a chart and see how I did and and all that stuff. And it looks like some of that is also in Lyft. And that's something that's that that I think is unique to it versus a straight up to do list app, because it might tell you like, hey, you did this task eight times. But in Lyft, you know, it's, it has a very nice graph that goes along with it. And it, it's just something you can kind of reflect on as well. And, you know, that 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 ticks the box. Oh, pun intended. Um, for, the, for 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 making lists and for people who love lists, right? Because it's you know that that satisfies that geeky need that we've got. Um, the other thing too, uh, gummy multivitamins are the way to go. Really? Totally. They are so great. I highly recommend them because here's the deal. <laughs> I do not like the taste of multivitamins. They suck. They taste awful. And I have always had a problem with that. Always, always, always. So I need something that either has no flavor or good flavor. And for a while I was taking the, the, uh, the, um, gosh, the nature made ones that are gels. So they're not tablets. So they're just a little gel cap. So there's no flavor. And then, um, my son started taking the, the gummy multivitamins, of course. Right. And, uh, then you know realize hey there there are adult ones available too so gummy multivitamins that's my endorsement of the week <laughs> not an app but freaking gummy multivitamins because they're awesome i'm gonna have to try that because i take a lot of different vitamins and my multivitamin oddly enough is my least favorite because it tastes so weird they taste terrible there's this weird metallic kind of grainy and uh, natural and metallic taste happening at the same time and it drives me nuts I don't like it and that you know what honestly that in the past stopped me from taking it because it just tasted so awful I knew it like it's it's one of those things like you know it's good for you you got to take vitamins um, Hulk Hogan told you to do it you've got to do it but um, <laughs> but when it tastes so bad it's it's oh gosh so that's been solved thankfully by modern technology you know gummy multivitamins is your balance <laughs> totally is it totally is that's great I love it it is because I, I you know I'm not going to take no vitamins because I know there's they're good for me right I'm not going to take the the disgusting tabs from uh, drugstore X so somewhere in between is the is the gummy for sure. I'm going to sure. go check it out. There's a phenomenal health food store in our neighborhood. And I'm going to go see if they have gummy multivitamins that are organic. Let's see if that happens. Oh, I, I bet those exist. That's pretty awesome. I love it. So um, reg regardless of whether you are repeating these things, if you're doing, if you're taking your multivitamin every day or if you're... Um, sticking to the plan, the eating plan, or doing your yoga or whatever. Part of what I struggle with against balance, and I think this is just because of my mentality, um, is that it 
feels as though you're trying to balance in the positive direction. Like you're in a negative place and you're trying to get to a positive place. At least that's right. how I think about it when it's discussed. But when I am thinking about it now more deeply now that we're talking about it, because I think this must be the longest conversation about balance I've ever had, I'm coming to a realization that it's the balance of the good and the bad. It means allowing yourself the bad as much as striving for the good. It's not about perfection. Otherwise, it would be called perfection. It's not all good. It's some good. And I'm reminded of yin and yang. I'm reminded of, you know, you can have two glasses of wine a night. I'm reminded of a piece of chocolate a day is recommended for women. I'm reminded of a lot of things where it's understood that we crave certain things. It's understood that we even need certain things. It's when we have too much of a good thing, you know, as the saying goes, that's when we get ourselves into trouble. And I think that I don't take that in as much. I don't really accept that as being true or good because when I think about needing to be in balance, I see it as a limitation more than allowing yourself to have those things that you want, but to a certain extent, to have enough, that word that we were using earlier, without having too much. And perhaps my struggle is that I don't know where that line of just enough is. And I either indulge and I go into the too much territory immediately or I restrict myself from having it at all out of fear that I will step over that enough boundary. And, you know, one of the things that is brought to mind immediately is um, in the readings that I've been doing on Buddhism lately, because I have been exploring Buddhism pretty seriously, um, is this one of the concepts, one of the primary beliefs, one of the Four Noble Truths, as it's called, is that suffering is the result of indulging in pleasures. And I really was not digging this at first when I read this. I liked a lot of things that I read about Buddhism, but specifically that, this notion that we should give up the pleasures because eventually pleasure becomes pain. You can't sustain pleasure forever. And when that happens, you suffer. I was like not really buying it. Um, buying a lot of the other stuff, but I was not buying that. And I went to a meditation group earlier in the week and then I was reading a book that was a part of the assignment for um, my coaching program called Essential Spirituality. I don't know if I told you about it yet but it's a great book. It's awesome. It's all about how all of the world's religions are essentially saying the same thing um, which is kind of cool mm -hmm. and what it's what it clarified for me, both this meditation group that I went to and the passage that I happened upon in the book, was that it's not that pleasure is bad or wrong or that it in Buddhism or in any of these other traditions that we're being taught to not have pleasures or not have preferences or not experience 
the positive excitements of life. That's not it at all. It's when a pleasure becomes a necessity where if you cannot indulge in it, then you're in pain. That if you can't get it immediately, if you can't fulfill that craving or can't can't get exactly what you want when you want it, that you become frenzied, that there is a balance to be had with the pleasures of life. And that isn't something that I've really accepted before. It's something that I've always resisted because I've believed that we have these sensations, we have these nerve endings that allow us to experience immense pleasure. And if we didn't, if we weren't designed this way, and I know people hate the word design, but if we hadn't, let's say, evolved to be this way, to have these receptors, then perhaps you can make a better argument that we shouldn't be indulging in them. But we have. We did evolve this way. We do have these receptors. And so my kind of uh, argument has always been we're meant to use them. We're meant to experience all the pleasures of life in all of its intensity. But what Buddhism is, what Buddhism aims to teach is that when a pleasure becomes an obsession, when it's something you must indulge in and with out ceasing when enough is never enough it's now become an attachment and it's really mm-hmm. attachments that buddhism suggests we eliminate from our life not pleasure at all and yes. I- i'm i'm get figuring out that what they're saying is try to find balance yes and the attachment point is a very Good one, because I was kind of wondering where you were going with all that, honestly, <laughs> because because the the whole the pleasure and indulgence stuff. Yeah, I, I you know, I I understand that I, I can I can get a sense of what what you mean with that. But definitely when it goes over to attachment, like that's when it clicks for me when you talk about it, because then you are attached to an idea, you're attached to an object, you are attached to a concept, something that is most almost definitely temporary, right? Um, And that may cause suffering and may cause pain because of that attachment. And that is something that, you know, is, is something to examine for sure. One of my dear friends, Roz Duffy, told me about Ganesha, which is a symbolism, I, I think, in Hindu. I'm probably wrong now that I'm saying it. I think it's one of the many gods in Hinduism, and um, it's it's an elephant that has a lot of wisdom and compassion associated with it. But the reason I bring it up is because um, one of the diagrams of Ganesha that I found online has a little mouse kind of sitting at her feet. And the mouse represents desire. And what it says is, unless under control, can cause havoc. You ride the desire and keep it under control and don't allow it to take you for a ride. And that's almost how I think 
balance is intended, what its role in our life is intended to be. Going back to that image that came up for me early on in our conversation with the seesaw, you have to be in control of your half of that seesaw. Otherwise, it's not really fun because you're just being jolted up and down by the other person or you're letting gravity and momentum take over. And it can be very disorienting, especially if one person is much heavier or lighter than the other. So, um, you know, there's, it's really only fun when it's a balanced ride and when you are enjoying flying up in the air, but you're also enjoying being rooted down and allowing that other person to dangle. And so I feel like I'm starting to see kind of how balance can play a really positive role, that it doesn't just have to be something to resist, that it's not trying to be a limitation in our lives, but that it really is a way of continuing to enjoy the pleasure longer term rather than having it envelop you, control you, and turn it into a pain ultimately. Right, 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 right. And the... So I love the Ganesha stuff because um, I had I had forgotten all about that. So uh, thanks thanks for mentioning that, and thanks to Ross for mentioning it too. Um, it's kind of related is a quote from um, Suzuki Roshi from Zen Mind Beginner's Mind that I must I must share um, because I think this this kind of gets to the point with the seesaw as well. Um, but basically, he's talking about um, control. There's a great there's a great uh, essay in that book about control and and how you how you control somebody is, is to give them freedom and rules and it's really great but what he says is 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 this is how everything exists in the realm of buddha nature losing its balance against a background of perfect balance oh right right i, love I mean that. that's it that's it's so good it's so good um because for me you know that that <laughs> That means it's that that ba- ah, it's that balance. I'm going to go circular on you, but it's it's the balance between everything is out of balance, but that also means that everything is actually in balance too, which makes sense to me when I say it out loud. Believe it or not, everything is in balance. Yes, the the globe keeps spinning. Yeah, it does. It's true, and we keep standing on it. We kept keep getting drawn into the earth's core we keep waking up every day and going to sleep every night and the sun rises and sets and there's two sides to every coin and we are all a part of that and i think it's when we resist that pleasure and pain and we resist that in and out and up and down and we try to stay in one state all of the time, that's when we lose our balance. Yes, because we don't have to stay in one state. We don't have to take one position or the other. We are messy. We are in that gray area because we are in balance by not being in balance. I really can't thank you enough for choosing this topic tonight, Paul, because this is something I didn't think I could really talk about, and it was not something that I really understood, and I think I get it for the first time now. 
Yeah, that's awesome, Whitney. Well, I'm, I'm glad I got to talk about it with you because I wanted to explore it and I knew this would be something that would be kind of interesting because I didn't know where it would go either. So that's what this is all about. Wow. So glad. What a great chat. Well, thanks to everyone for listening today. Um, we, as always, want to hear your feedback. Have these podcasts been helpful to you, interesting? Are you learning things about yourself? Are you able to identify with what we're sharing? And if you have any feedback for us on the format, on topics you'd love to see us cover or anything else, please share those with us. And we also want to make you aware that we have a Twitter account now, Designing You. Yep, that's always exciting. It feels official, right? It feels totally official. It's weird. It's weird to have my own podcast following me, but I love it too. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's designing you, and it's Y O U spelled out uh, that way. Um, and another thing too is that you know, uh, on the feedback stuff, please feel free to tweet at uh, at designing you or at Whitney Hess or at Paul McAleer. You know, we we are on Twitter all the time, practically. So um, we we love that feedback. And another thing too is that uh, for those of you who are hip to the iTunes and, and love the iTunes stuff, um, you know our podcast is available on the iTunes store. And this is the portion of the show, and this is the first time that I will ask you to leave feedback on the iTunes store. Um, because, well, it's feedback, and it's good stuff, and that helps other people find the podcast too. And that's that would be super useful. So if you feel so moved, that would be wonderful. Please do that. Wow. Well, I can't wait to see what we talk about next. Yes, me either. This has been great. Uh, thank you so much for the conversation tonight. Thank you. Have a good night. You too. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll talk to you soon.